this Advent, we are focusing on one specific Advent theme. There are four, and peace is one of them. But we're going to be focusing all season on the theme of peace. And if you weren't here last week when we introduced this series, we talked about this very odd thing that happened at the first Christmas when angels appeared to shepherds and told them, in effect, as of today, there is glory to God in heaven, and as of today, there is peace on earth. And we talked about how odd it is for the angels to have said 2,000 years ago that now there is peace on earth, considering the most violent centuries in human history were ahead of it. Considering how much the wheels would come off human society in the future. And yet, peace has been here all along these past 2,000 years. How is that possible? What we talked about last week is the fact that Peace came into the world because we know that God finishes what he starts. And we looked at the story of Simeon who saw Jesus at eight days old and found himself at peace because he knew he saw the baby and seen any one glimpse of God's plan guaranteed for him that the whole plan would be accomplished. And so just seeing the baby was enough to know that the crucifixion, I mean, he didn't know the details of God's plan, but it, for him it was as good as knowing the crucifixion would happen, the resurrection would happen, the second coming would happen, that one glimpse. And we call that ability to believe in the entirety of God's plan from one glimpse, we call that faith. Because it requires you to take what you've seen in the present and believe it into the future, which no one can control. Faith is not about believing in impossible things. It's not about believing in ridiculous things or believing in the absence of proof. Faith is taking the proof that you have and actually living on the assumption that, though, that you know how the future is going to unfold, that God can be counted on to unfold the future in a particular way. And it's through faith that the peace that we know Jesus will bring in the end can be present for us today both in the fact that we can feel at peace because we know how things are going to end, and also because we can bring peace into the world by living out the way we know the world is going to end. I can make peace in my neighborhood because I don't have to be afraid of how the world is going to end. I don't have to be afraid of how my life is going to end. I can actually live out the peace of God. Today, we are going to look at the next story in the Gospel of Luke in which someone encounters Jesus and goes away at peace. And in this case, the person who encounters Jesus, the reason why they don't have peace, their most pressing reason is because of guilt. And we talked last week about the promises of God about the Messiah, one of them being that he would address the guilt of Israel. So today, we are going to talk about how Jesus brings peace to the guilty. Raise your hand if you're one of them. No, you don't need to. We know we're all guilty. Um, but for some of us, that feeling of guilt is, uh, we all have a different experience with that, and we have a different experience in different seasons of our lives. But it's something that we need to deal with. And so I'm going to read for us the story of Jesus and who's the woman who's become known as the sinful woman because we aren't given her name. This is in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. 
he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's a puzzle at the heart of this story, and it's different for us today than the puzzle was for the original people in the story. The original puzzle for Simon was, why would Jesus let this sinful woman blubber all over him? That's the puzzle. That's the strange thing about Jesus' behavior. A few things have changed in the last 2,000 years. And I think that our culture has a different puzzle when we look at that story. For us, it's not shocking or uh, it, it doesn't challenge his integrity to that a sinful woman, a woman with a bad reputation, would cry in him and he would allow that. We actually, we value the idea of associating with people who are struggling. We, you know, there's, there's, that wouldn't ostracize you in our culture necessarily. What's stranger for us in our culture is the fact that she is blubbering over him in the first place. Because all that's happened for this woman is that a rabbi who has no connection to her personally, no, uh, no involvement in her life and in her, or in her sins, has told her she's forgiven. That, if you read through the story, uh, that must have happened prior to this event, right? He forgave her, and she came back to say thank you. And the strange thing for us is the fact that that would be such a profound experience that would cause her to weep over him. Can you imagine someone doing that today? that they encounter a stranger, and that stranger says, you are forgiven for the things you did to other people, and that being so meaningful that that person would break down in tears, go home and get their most expensive bottle of perfume, and then dump it on his feet. It's not how we would react. Mainly because I think that we devalue forgiveness. It's not the way we deal with guilt. 
In our culture in which we emphasize subjectivity and the idea that each person has to find their own truth and their own journey, we tend to address guilt by saying that you need to forgive yourself. You need to be at peace with your past. You need to move on. You need to accept it. You need to be at psychological peace with your past. So maybe a a really good therapist who helped her to forgive herself might then, she might weep over them. But the idea that a person could grant forgiveness and it would cause this emotional reaction is very strange for us. So the puzzle for us is why did she weep? What is different about the way she understood guilt and forgiveness from us in our culture today that would have such a profound effect on her? That's what I want to dig into today. The first thing that we recognize from her reaction is that this woman knew that she needed forgiveness in order to be whole again. This is not necessarily something that our culture would agree with, that you need forgiveness in order to be whole again. We would say that you need to accept yourself. Other people need to accept you. You need to move on from your past in order to be whole. But forgiveness is not really something that you need. We might say that you need to forgive other people for your own psychological well-being. But for her, she knew that she needed forgiveness in order to be whole. And the reason for that is because she understood, as her culture understood uh, better than we do, that all sin causes damage, no matter how understandable or excusable it is. That's actually what makes it sin. So one of the things that we do in our culture, which on a very important level is a good thing, is that we will look at people who have gotten into situations that are socially unacceptable, and we will acknowledge the circumstances that put them there. And, and we will acknowledge the reasons that, for which they were not to blame. And I think it's good for us to acknowledge that. So let's look at the example of this woman. We don't know exactly it, doesn't, it just tells us that she was sinful, but considering the way Simon reacts, it's relatively certain that she is uh, an adulterer, probably a prostitute. She probably, it's, there's probably money involved. That's her sin, and that's her reputation. And we can talk about the reasons why that happens, the reasons why a person ends up in that uh, profession, We can talk about the fact that in a patriarchal society, women have very few options for making money, and if they end up on their own, they have to choose from very difficult options, most of which are not socially acceptable. We can talk about the kinds of abuses that can lay behind those decisions and and the understandable stories that get people into those hard situations. My wife and I just recently watched Les Mis, and that's kind of what that play is or that musical is about. It's about how the, the reasons why people get into difficult positions like that. And you feel sympathetic for them all the way through. And it's good and right that we should recognize that. And yet, that doesn't change the fact that sin causes damage. Probably the quickest way to get into that mentality in this case is instead of imagining yourself, well, we should do both. Imagine yourself in the position of a woman who found herself with no other options but this, or felt that way at least, Now, imagine yourself as the wife of one of her clients. 
does it seem like a victimless, innocent thing from that perspective? The fact is that, that when we take sexual behavior out of what God designed it for, it's disruptive. It's disruptive to our existing relationships. It's disruptive to our ability to form healthy relationships in the future. And it's disruptive to both parties. So that because of the situation in which this woman has found herself, her ability to connect with others has been damaged. She, the, the people she has, uh, her clients, their ability to relate with people properly has been damaged. Their relationships with their spouses has been damaged. There's a lot of damage that has come out of this. And that is not changed by the fact that we can come up with reasons why she is not to blame for being in that situation. The fact is that sin causes damage, and that's why God calls it sin. God isn't petty. He tells us not to do certain things because they are destructive. And so this woman is aware of this. We don't know what kind of mental processes she went through to try and make sense of where she was at that, before she met Jesus, the excuses that she might have made. One thing is she was probably not like the woman from Les Mis, she was, she was probably a higher, you know, on the higher end. She had more money. She was probably wealthy in this regard. She has a really expensive um, bottle of perfume. She might have come up with all these different excuses and, and reasons and explanations, but deep down, when you see the amount of relief that flooded out of her because she was forgiven, it was because those excuses did not fully satisfy the guilt that she was feeling. Most likely because she was aware of the damage that was done to herself and to others. And this is where our culture's approach to sin, to guilt, is insufficient. Because the fact is that we cannot find peace without addressing the damage that is caused by sin. It's not enough to say, well, there were good reasons at the time. That doesn't do anything for the client's wife. Right? It doesn't do anything for the people who are afflicted by our sin. And sometimes we abuse the gospel by... Like, I've, I've seen um, on YouTube like clips of people at the dock getting their... Or, um, people in court getting their sentencing and saying, well, don't sentence me to much because Jesus has forgiven me. That's an abuse of the idea, right? Because there's still damage that has been caused. And so she clearly, in her, in her heart, knows that there is something that has to be addressed that cannot be addressed simply by forgetting, by moving on, with therapy, with any kind of the mental tricks that we use to make ourselves feel better about the things that we've done. There's still destruction in the world. So that's the first thing that she was aware of. The second thing that she must, have been, she must have believed was she knew that Jesus had the power to forgive. Otherwise, she wouldn't have reacted to Jesus giving her forgiveness. Right? So the fact that she reacted so strongly means she knew she needed forgiveness, and she believed that Jesus could forgive her, which is interesting because Jesus was not directly affected by her sin. Right? Jesus was not a party to her sin where, where she owed him an apology because, because she, you know, she didn't cut him off in traffic or do something to him. This is a traveling rabbi. 
who makes some pretty big claims about himself, but, but he's not involved in any of the situations for which he's seeking forgiveness. But the thing is that the reason why we are often so plagued with guilt, and to a certain extent should be, is because the effects of sin are too great for any human being to undo. The forgiveness that we offer each other is important, but it does not undo the consequences. It is important for human beings to forgive each other when we are in, involved because part of the damage is the resentment and the hurt that we hold on to. And so the thing that you can contribute to when you're involved in a situation, the way you can contribute to restoration is by letting go of the hurt or the resentment that is in your heart as a victim of it. And that, that is something that can help to restore yourself as well as the other person. But that's as far as it goes. That doesn't change the damage that's been done. How often if you watch in, uh, I don't know if I've just been watching a lot of footage from court cases lately, but you'll have like people who, like after they, after they have a DUI and, and kill somebody, and they say, they'll, they'll say the, the, out of regret, they'll apologize as profusely as they can. But what do we often say? Nothing they say can bring the person back. Nothing they say can undo the damage that was done. But something about Jesus... Something about what he's saying is apparently more powerful. This is the big thing that everybody notices in this whole situation. Simon is shocked that Jesus let the woman blubber all over his feet. Everyone else is shocked that Jesus said her sins were forgiven. That's what they say. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Because the fact that he's not a party to the sin means that he's declaring something bigger than that. Something bigger than just, I forgive you for hurting me. And what he, the way to make sense of what he's saying is to remember who Jesus is. And what Jesus has been preaching. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God. And when someone who's preaching that the kingdom of God is coming says, your sins are forgiven... You put those together, what he's saying is that when the kingdom comes, your sins will be forgiven. When the kingdom it is part of building the kingdom, you are in. He's claimed the authority to decide who is going to be able to be part of the kingdom. And you have to have quite a bit of authority to proclaim that. So what Jesus is saying and what this woman apparently believes is that he speaks for God. Because only someone who speaks for God can say that your sin is actually being undone. To say that your sin will be undone, that the effects of it will be wiped away, that is something that only God can do. So the the type of forgiveness that Jesus is offering is the kind that we wish we could offer, but we can't. The kind that actually does undo the destruction caused by sin. That is a really big deal. But it's a puzzle. It is a puzzle for us to figure out. And so for this last part, I want you to go with me here because this is a really important 
aspect of what forgiveness means in the New Testament that we don't talk about very often, but I think it helps us to understand the right way to live as forgiven people. Because living as a forgiven person does not mean pretending that your sins didn't happen and you never hurt anybody. And unfortunately, that's sometimes what we do. And then we actually add to the damage. The final reason why this woman was, the thing that she knew, and the reason why she was transformed by Jesus' forgiveness is that she believed the forgiveness of Jesus could bring her final peace. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't answer it. Just think about it. When do we get saved? Volumes have been written to answer this question. When do we get saved? Some would say it's the moment you say a particular prayer on the back of a card. Some would say it's the moment you go into the water and come back out. Some would say that it's before the moment that the world was created, that God decided before any time. Some people might say, well, it depends on where you're at when you die. A lot of different answers. None of them are how Paul would have answered the question. See, Paul has a very interesting way of talking about salvation. He will say things like this. When the kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Past tense. It is by grace you have been saved. Past tense. Now, in this hope we were saved. Past tense. But he will also talk about salvation this way. The gospel is the power of God to us who are being saved. Present tense. Here again in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about how you are being saved. Present tense. And 2 Corinthians, those who are being saved. Present tense. And finally, Romans 5. We, uh, how much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Future tense. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Future tense. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Future tense. How can, and actually, if you do a study, it's almost exactly even, but uh, when Paul mentions salvation, it's almost exactly evenly distributed between past tense, present tense, and future tense. Why does he talk about salvation that way? Well, actually, this verse that we're on right here is the best uh, clue to the puzzle. In this instance, he is talking about a person who has invested their life in, in all, trying to build their own salvation, and all the things that they've built up, they go through the fire and get burned away, but he'll still be saved with what's left, which is the foundation of the gospel. Because he's talking, about, he's talking about a time when God apparently lights a match and sticks it to the building and sees how much of it burns, right? He's talking about what we would call judgment day. That there is a day, and this is a belief that God's people have had since well into the Old Testament, there will be a day when everyone stands before God and they are judged. And, they, and God pronounces a verdict. And that is when we find out who's saved and who's not. In the Jewish perspective and in Paul's perspective, your salvation is a matter of what verdict will you get at the end 
when God passes judgment on everyone. But if, if our salvation happens in the future, how can he say that it's present and that it's past? Because when Jesus says, you're forgiven, who is he speaking for? He's speaking for God. What the New Testament teaches us is that because Jesus is king, because he is sent as God's representative and because he is as the king of the coming kingdom, he can tell us ahead of time what our verdict will be. So when Jesus tells her, you are forgiven, he is telling her the verdict that she is going to receive at the end. And because she believes him, because she has faith in him, she's taking that as presently true. And because God doesn't change over time, because God is outside of time, it is true. Because when, if God is going to save you, then, he, then you, the moment you know that, you know that you're saved. That's why we can speak of it as past tense, as, as good as done. It's settled. Also, as present tense, as something that is being changed in me, because salvation doesn't just mean that you don't get punished. It also means that you get transformed into the kind of person that can truly live in God's good world for eternity. So you're being saved. Because you're not just saved from the, from the judgment for sin. You're saved from the consequences of being a sinful person. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a sinful person. And to find out I'm going to live eternally as broken as I've always been, that actually doesn't sound like heaven. Right? So I'm being saved as God changes me because I will be saved. So the forgiveness of Jesus was a promise that God would forgive her in the last days. And our sure and certain hope comes from the fact that we know God doesn't change his mind. In the end, it doesn't matter when in history God declares you saved. It's a fact if he says it. So when she heard Jesus say that her sins were forgiven, she understood that as a promise, as a confirmation, that when it came time to sort out who's going into the kingdom and who's not, she already knew the answer. The ending had been given away. That she was going to get it. And that's what upset people. That's what upset the audience, is that Jesus is already handing out verdicts. He's already given away the ending. And the wrong people are getting in. That's what so offended them about Jesus. He claimed to be able to tell you who's going to get saved, and he named all the wrong people. But for her, the reason why that was so important, that this person, this rabbi, was forgiving her, was because she knew that this person who speaks for God, she probably didn't yet grasp that he also was God, but this person who spoke for God could tell her that she's being forgiven, and that the effects of her sin will be undone. And that knowledge changes everything. Because by trusting in his forgiveness, she could live in the knowledge that the effects of her sin would be undone. See, here's the thing. Jesus did not wipe away the consequences of her sin the moment he forgave her. Right? This is what we want. We want to be able, and some people will claim this. Hey, I've been forgiven, and so it's as if my sin never happened, and you shouldn't expect me to do anything to address it. It's over. We can't talk about it anymore. You have to forgive me and pretend like I never hurt you because Jesus forgave me. Jesus does forgive us. 
but he does not wipe away the consequences of what we've done in that moment. And so, for instance, the fact that she is being, you know, that, that, this, that Simon is looking down on her is one of the continuing effects of her sin. I mean, he's wrong to do it, but, he's, but it is still one of the effects of what she, the life she's been living, right? And she is going to continue to experience the effects of that. She's still not going to be able to meet the eyes of the wives of her clients in the street, right? That's, that's not, it's not like they're going to let go of that immediately. Like that, those things are still happening. But she knows that one day, all the damage that has been done to her and all the damage that she has done to others will be wiped away. That God will undo all of it. And that's what gives us the ability to continue on living in a world where we still have to deal with the consequences of our sin. It doesn't mean that you pretend like it never happened. It doesn't mean that you don't owe anything to the people that you hurt, but it means that you know that your sin will eventually be wiped away and it doesn't actually define you anymore. Imagine this. Let's say you murder somebody. Maybe there's extenuating circumstances, so you get a sentence that means you're going to get out of prison before you die. When you come out, you're still a murderer. The person you killed is still dead. People are still going to treat you as a murderer. Even if you've been forgiven, there will still be effects, there will still be amends to be made, there will still be disruption in this world. And you would be wrong to live as if you'd never killed anybody. You would be wrong to brush off the hurt of the family that you, that you irreparably, at least in this life, harmed. But you also know that you're not always going to be a murderer. That that damage will be undone by Jesus. And that means that in eternity, you will no longer be defined by that. And so you can live this life dealing with what your sin says, with the effects that your sin has had, without despair, knowing that someone else will undo it all. That's how we can live up to the burden of sin. We can live hopefully without just denying that our actions hurt other people, because that's what our society does now. We move forward without, we deal with our guilt by just pretending that what we did doesn't matter or that other people shouldn't be upset by what we did. You know, we just, we just deny the damage. But the forgiveness of Jesus Christ allows us to face a world in which we have caused damage be able to deal with that damage, but deal with it in hope, knowing that one day it will be undone. By the way, this is also how we find the strength to forgive. By that very same faith. Because people will hurt us in ways that we are certain can never be undone. If you've been hurt by someone and it had deep psychological uh, you know, it deeply formed you. Like if some, something happened when you were a kid, right? Like siblings have the amazing ability to cause long-lasting damage in each other, right? Because you, you run in, you have your, your porcupines at your most formative phase, right? And you're, you know, I am always going to struggle with rushing through dinner because I'm used to dinner being a fight, a competition with my older brothers, right? That is lifelong damage that they did to me. <laughs> 
And yet, if we believe that Jesus Christ's forgiveness actually means that he's going to make all things new, then I not only know that the things I've done to others will not eternally define me, but the things they've done to me will not eternally define me. And that's how we can forgive the things that people have done to us that may have very dire consequences, that may have really deeply hurt us. And notice, it's not because of something they have done. Because sometimes we think we're waiting for the other person to make it right, and then we'll forgive them. Well, we already know that human beings can't really make it right. Not in the things that really matter, the damage that's really done. We can't undo that. We can air out the problem, we can let go of burdens and, and things, but we can't actually undo that. So waiting for the other person to make it right is never going to happen. But living in faith that Jesus will make it right in the ways that really matter, that's what can give us the strength to forgive now. It also helps us to understand why it's important to forgive. Because we're living, we, we know that the eternal world we will live in is one in which all things have been made new. It will make no sense to harbor those burdens, to harbor those grudges in that eternal world. Which isn't to say that it's, forgiveness is just a switch you can flip now. So just go out and forgive everybody. But it is to say that if we understand the, the world that we're going to live in, the reality that is going to persist forever, then we will begin to see how it's possible to let go, to forgive the things that damage us in the here and now without minimizing their importance. Because we're looking forward to that day, that world we will live in when all burdens will be taken away, when all sins will be forgiven. We want to live in that world, right? And being a Christian means that we use our faith in the world to come to help us live and, and be that world now. So if we want to live in a world where everything can be forgiven, then when we need to be people now who can forgive everything, which is a hard journey. Also, one last point on this to remember is that forgiving does not mean ignoring and forgetting the consequences of sin. One of the things that, one of the ways churches have gotten this wrong is we've said, okay, you're supposed to forgive each other and now pretend like the thing never happened and we'll send people back into destructive patterns in their lives that are just going to get repeated because the damage is still there or it's likely to happen again. And we say, but you've been forgiven, so we're going to pretend like it never happened and it'll never happen again. That's not what forgiveness means. Because our ultimate hope is that Jesus will set all things right. But we begin in this world to live out the reality that Jesus is creating where sin can be forgiven and burdens can be released. Here's what I want you to take home. You can forget everything I said if you remember these last three points. This just summarizes it all, okay? First, there is forgiveness in Christ for any and every burden. Whatever burden you are carrying, it can be forgiven. You may look at the things that you've done and the damage they've caused and say, that damage can never be done, undone, therefore I can never be forgiven. 
fact is that Jesus can and will undo all bad things. He will make all things new. And so you are relieved of the burden not because you can make it right, but because Jesus will make it right. So if there is anything in your life where, that has kept you from seeking forgiveness, if there's any burden of guilt that you've been bearing because you think it just can never be undone, Jesus tells you it can and it will. You can seek that forgiveness from him. Secondly, I want you to remember that forgiveness brings the full restoration of the future into our present. We, it can be unhelpful when we act as if forgiveness brings full restoration into the present. Because usually what that means is we minimize the damage that's been done to the people that have been hurt. And that's often what our culture does. But what the gospel does is because our faith in Jesus Christ makes us certain of the ending, we can bring that ending into the present because we know the, kind, the way we are going to spend eternity. We know the principles that will truly endure. We know what will truly define us in our eternal existence. I say this a lot. Mathematically, if you're going to live eternally, what percentage of your life will you spend this side of glory? Do you know the math? It's zero percent. Because you have eternity, infinity, on the other end of it. So zero percent of your life is spent this side of glory. And I think that helps us to prioritize, right? And to remember that 100%, 99.999% of our existence is spent in a world of forgiveness and restoration. And because we know that, we can bring that into our present. Finally, I wasn't planning on having already mentioned this, but I did, and so I'm going to hit it again. Those who receive God's forgiveness must forgive others. This is perhaps the most countercultural thing in Christianity, and it always has been, and it always will be. I'm going to read you some, some short passages that have a repeating theme. I'm going to uh, you know, maybe shift now because you're going to get uncomfortable. Everybody curl up your toes. Okay? I'm about to stomp on them. Well, the Bible is about to because he's stomping on mine too. Jesus said, uh, the, sorry, that's not supposed to have the end of the prayer there. Uh, if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. We are ordered to forgive. Why is that? It's because God is not just your personal God defending you in your own disputes. God is creating a world of forgiveness where everything is restored. And if we are going to live in that world, then that has to go in every direction. 
If you get to carry your grudges into eternity, then eternity will not be a place of forgiveness and restoration. If you are going to take advantage of God's forgiveness, if you are going to be relieved of your burden because you know we are going into a world where all things are made new, then how can you hold on to the burdens that other, the, the, the burdens that other people have knowing what's going to happen in the future? How can we hold on to onto our grudges when we've been forgiven because we know that all things will be made new? This is not a tit-for-tat thing where you do something and God does something for you. What Jesus is saying in, and what the Apostle Paul is saying is that our forgiveness is entering into a new kind of world where all grudges, all burdens are left behind, and you can't get in there bringing your own grudges with you. It just doesn't work. So receiving forgiveness from God and forgiving others is part of the same thing. You cannot bring your grudges with you. Now, I'm, I'm saying it's a command. I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that I think you can flip a switch and do it because I told you to, or even because the Bible told you to over and over and over again. But it is part of our being made more like Jesus. It is part of the journey we are on. And it is something we do not because we, we need to think of owing it to the other people, but because we owe it to God. We owe it. it it's part of us becoming ready for the world we're going to spend eternity in. We have to leave those burdens behind because ours will be left behind too. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to consider a couple of questions. The first one is, have you actually received God's forgiveness? Can you say that you've received God's forgiveness? Because all you have to do to receive that forgiveness is to ask for it, to give your life to Christ. And today is the best day for you to do that and to know what your final verdict will be. So if you haven't done that, I would encourage you to come forward and talk to me or Pastor Rachel after the service. Um, if you're online, talk to a pastor, a uh, Christian that you know and trust, but don't let this chance pass. Maybe you've received that forgiveness, but you're like literally every other person who's ever received that forgiveness and you're struggling to live in it. You're struggling to live as a forgiven person and you're struggling to live as a forgiving person. Today, if there is a specific situation on your heart that you've felt like God is poking you in, I would encourage you to deal with that, to address that, to focus on it, to pray on it. But also, I would encourage you to get connected with uh, the body of God's people because we are all working together to become people who can live a forgiven lifestyle and a forgiving lifestyle. There are green cards in the seat back in front of you that will show you some of the opportunities where you can get involved with small groups in our church. We would love to connect more with you and for you to join us in that journey of becoming forgiving people. Finally, you may be looking for an opportunity to give back, to serve others, to, to share what God has given you. That's what the blue cards in the seat back in front of you are for. We have a lot of opportunities for you to serve 
and that includes serving with our food bank. It also includes, if any of you are uh, interested in being instrumentalists in the worship team, um, serving behind the scenes, there are lots of things that you can do to serve, but serving others is one of the ways that we can live out this forgiven and forgiving mindset because it draws us out of ourselves and out of our focus on ourselves and draws our focus into building the kingdom that God is bringing. Whatever God is putting on your heart, I encourage you to, to focus on that, to make a decision about what it looks like to act on it and to not let this moment pass, but to let it be the spark of a change, uh, a transformation as you further your walk with Jesus Christ. Amen? Now I invite you to stand for our final song, if you're able. Uh, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ uh, ought properly to cause us joy. And so we're going to sing joy to the world.